But Jesus went up to the Mount of Olives early in the morning. He came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him. He sat down and began to teach them. Scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman's been caught in adultery in the very act. Now the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. Jesus stooped on the ground, and with his finger he wrote, but when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up. He said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone. And the woman, where she was, in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go, from now on, sin no more. There's a little girl. She was sick. She had to go to doctors. She had a little fever. The doctor began to uh, look in her ears, you know, get those little tools out, look in her eyes. And he goes, who's in there, Donald Duck? She goes, no. He looked at her nose. He said, who's in there, Mickey Mouse? She said, no. And she, he put his stethoscope on her heart. He goes, who's in there, Barney? I hate Barney, by the way. She's like, no, 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 no. And then she said in a serious face, she said, Jesus is in my heart. Barney's on my underwear. <laughs> Jesus is in my heart. We've heard that before. What is that girl saying in, in saying that? She's four years old, and she gets the whole idea. When you say that Jesus is in our hearts, we're saying that Jesus is the controlling center of our lives, are we not? We're saying that Jesus is the focal point of all we are and all we do. This little girl understands it. As a matter of fact, if we agree with the Apostle Paul, it is not I who live, but Jesus. Jesus Christ who lives in me, I live for him. If that's the case, if Jesus is in our hearts, if he's the controlling factor of our hearts, then our hearts should reflect whose heart? The heart of Jesus. The heart is the very center of our being, physically. A controlling organism, supplying life to the rest of the body. Folks, if something is wrong with our heart, something's wrong all around. We see that. Well, the same goes for our spiritual hearts. As we look at this passage today, we're going to look at three hearts. Three hearts. I've broken this down into kind of like a character development passage. We're going to look at the heart of the sinner... We're going to look at the heart of the saints. We're going to look at the heart of our Savior. And when we look at the heart of Jesus and when we see how he, his heart is towards the sinner and to the saint, or to the self-righteous, I should say, we need to understand that the heart of Jesus needs to be in the heart of his church, should it not? We should reflect his heart. 
the way that He treats people, and the way that we look at ourselves is shown here in this passage. It's an illustration. It's a real event illustration of the mission of Jesus Christ, His attitude towards two groups of people, the sinner and the saint. So we're going to jump around a bit because it is a character sermon, but you can look on your outlines, kind of mapped out a little bit of it. But the first heart that we're going to look at is the heart of the sinner. So kind of focusing on the first verse, we see that, that Jesus is teaching again. And the scribes and the Pharisees, all of a sudden, they bring this woman. They toss her in the center of the court. There she is surrounded by all these people. And he said, look, this woman has been caught in adultery. And the law, and they're absolutely correct, the law says she is to be stoned. Lieutenant Jack Cambria has spent more than a decade talking people down from the ledge. Until his recent retirement in 2015, he was commanding officer of the New York City Police Department's hostage negotiation team for over 33 years. During his career, he became an expert at saving fellow cops from gun-wielding maniacs or dissuading people not to jump off New York City's skyscrapers or bridges. He was asked the question, what's the secret to being a successful hostage negotiator? He said, the very good negotiators, I think, are the ones with life stories. Particularly, he added, life stories of pain, stories that have produced compassion and empathy for others. He said good negotiators must experience these emotions, experience the emotion of love at one point in their life to know what it means to have been hurt in love, to know success, but also, perhaps even more importantly, to understand failure. He said that he learned this lesson during his first day as a police officer. He had his own baggage against homeless people. He had judged them, condemned them as violent, dirty, and mentally unstable. Then one day, he had a confrontation with a homeless person who tried to beat out a fare, and he searched his satchel. He said what he found wasn't a weapon, but it was a manuscript. It was a manuscript of a play titled Crabs in a Basket. It was a metaphor for the man of his struggle to crawl out of the hole that he was in. He said in that two minute space of time, he had transposed himself from a homeless guy, my baggage, to a playwright. He said from that point on, he was compassionate towards these individuals, not judging them. And he was referred to as Gentleman Jack whose guiding principle was to talk to the suspects. How is it that you and I can be good negotiators for God and His gospel? We can start right here. Compassion. Empathy. That's why I start with the heart of the sinner. Because these are the people that you and I are dealing with as we present the gospel of Jesus Christ to this world, are we not? We're presenting it to sinners. But sinners, as we're going to see, just like 
you and me. I wanted to look at this woman and help kind of place ourselves in her shoes or actually lack thereof. We need to look at the world the way that Jesus does, with a heart of compassion, understanding, people who are in need of empathy, and especially people who are in need of forgiveness. This is why I start with this woman. I specifically label her as a sinner because that's exactly what these folks do, isn't it? Notice how they treat her. So you just got to think about what is happening in this, this girl's life right now. So all of a sudden, she's caught. She's actually caught in the act, and don't get me wrong, she's absolutely guilty. She's caught in the act, and she's taken from this place where she's at, and she's probably dragged through the streets by all of these men. And you can guarantee it that there was probably an angry mob following us around. And all these people want to do what? They want to kill her. They want to kill her with stones. And she's brought before these people and she's placed in this circle and she's laid down, as many pictures uh, would illustrate, maybe she's standing up, it's possible. And she's separated from them. And notice how they talk to her. What do they say? They say, this woman. So she's just a woman. She's just an individual. No name. No personality. And then they label her as an adulterer. She's caught in the very act, taken by a bunch of men, religious leaders of this day. But then we see something else. We see that she's being used. They could care less about this woman. They could care less about the law. They can care less about God's holiness. They are willing to use this woman to exploit her and her situation to get to Jesus. They're willing for this woman to die so that they can condemn Christ. And they think they've placed Christ in this proverbial rock in a hard place. So, there's some, so she's, what are the emotions she's probably feeling at this point? Well, she's definitely probably ashamed. She's guilty. She's caught in the act. There's, there's no question about it. She's embarrassed. Because if you think about it, if she's taken, and a lot of the, if you look at some of the pictures that are, that are drawn about this situation, uh, they show her kind of half, half clothed. And if she's taken from that situation, she probably didn't have time to, to put on all her clothes. She, she may be half naked in front of all of these people, mainly men at this time. You think she's afraid? Absolutely. She's alone. She has no one there to defend her. Humiliated? She's about to die and she's exploited. She knows something's going on. So most likely, I just want to add some more insight into this woman. Most likely, if you go to Deuteronomy 22, 22 through 24, uh, here's the part of the law that I think they are referring to, and it's the second half of it. It says, If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. If a man happens to meet in a town a virgin pledged to be married, and he sleeps with her, he shall take both of them to the gate of the town and stone them to death. So I think it's this second aspect here 
because of the stoning. The first penalty is just death. The second penalty with regard to the virgin is stoning. This makes us wonder, how old is this girl? Because many, many times, and we look back at Mary, Mary was probably around 15 to 16 when she gave birth to Jesus. Uh, Many girls during this time would be betrothed at a very young age. So this girl is probably 14 to, let's say, 17 years old. This is the age of my daughter. She hasn't even lived a third of her life. And now she is being condemned for a sin, for a, a definite sin she's guilty of. But there's another question. Where's the guy? Why is the guy not there? So now we begin to wonder, if this was a setup for Christ, did they actually rig this for the girl? Did they send in a guy knowing and take advantage of this girl? I mean, we have no idea, but it begs the question, doesn't it? Did he have connections? Is that why he's not there? Are they truly seeking justice? No, not at all. Do you think this girl is wondering? Absolutely. Do you think she's sorry at this point for what she's done? Absolutely. And look how she's defined. Adulterer. That's it. She's defined as a sinner. Now, don't get me wrong. She's guilty. And the law needs to be upheld. But by these guys? Who are seeking what? To exploit her, to use her as a pawn, to get to Jesus Christ. I need to think about something. How many people in here have committed a sin that they're not proud of? Okay. I did something the other week, got mad at someone in response to their sin against me. And I felt absolutely terrible. Apologized to the person and to other people who were around because, and I kept saying, I'm a Christian, I shouldn't be doing, I'm a pastor, shouldn't be doing this. And I I remember thinking to myself, I I don't know how I can lead people if I fall into, it was an anger sin, a prideful sin. And you begin to wonder, but can you imagine, can you imagine doing something that you weren't proud of, that you knew afterwards it was wrong, you felt guilty over it, you felt ashamed over it, Can you imagine being pulled out into the middle of a mob and then being pointed that sin out? You liar. You you thief. You self-righteous. Whatever it is. And being pulled out into the middle of a mob and and then being condemned to die for that sin. And those individuals not having an ounce of mercy or compassion on you whatsoever. Why do I do this exercise? Why talk about the heart of this young girl? Because at the end of every finger that we point, there's a person like this. A person who's afraid 
person who, yes, may have done something wrong, but a person in need of mercy and compassion. We need to place ourselves in their shoes because that's what Jesus does for these guys who are accusing her. So let's look at the, the second group, the, the saints. And basically, verses, we're going to be focused on the verses 3 through 9. They, they bring her out. We can see their attitude towards her. Uh, we can see their attitude towards Jesus. We can see their attitude towards the compassion of Christ because they want to catch him. And they're using his compassion for sinners in order to catch him and pit him against the law. So they try to place Jesus in this position uh, between God's holiness and mercy and compassion. So just think about those aspects. But they are forgetting one thing. And Jesus points that out to them. Guy tells a story, he says, like most of us, John Burke, pastor of Gateway Church in Austin, assumed that he was not a very judgmental person. But just in case he was wrong, he tried an experiment. What was his experiment? So his experiment was for a whole week, he kept track of his judgments of people. I'm not sure I would want to do that. <laughs> I think I would run out, of, run out of space in the old notebook. So a whole week, he kept track. He thought he was non-judgmental. He didn't condemn people. Here's what he discovered. He said, judging others is absolutely fun. He says, it makes you feel good about yourself. He goes, I'm not sure I've gone a single day without this sin. He said, in any given week, I might condemn my son numerous times for a messy room or judge my daughter for being moody, which is especially bothering when I'm moody, but I have a good reason to be. He said, even my dog gets the hammer of condemnation for his bad breath. He said, some of you might be thinking, what are you saying? Is correcting my kid for a messy room so kids don't get excited, is that judging? And he says, no, but listen to what he says. There's a correction that values the individual when given with mercy. And he says, there's a correction and a judgment that devalues with condemnation. I watch the news and I condemn those idiotic people who do such things. Most reality TV shows are full of people that I judge as sinful, ignorant, stupid, arrogant, or childish. I get my car and I drive. This, is, I, this list is really personal right now. He says, I get my car and I drive through the world among a host of drivers who should have flunked their driving test. I throw a little condemnation at our Department of Public Safety for good measure, those potholes. At the store, I complain to myself about the lack of organization that makes it impossible to find what I'm looking for, all the while being tortured with that music who chooses it anyway. I stand in the shortest line, which I judge is way too long, because look, people, it says 10 items or less. And what's with that checkout girl? What is she wearing? Why can't she just focus and do her job? He says, if we're honest, but we're not, judging is our favorite pastime. We're great at judging and condemning the world around us, but we don't like the finger being pointed 
at ourselves. Judging the world around us makes us feel good because it puts us in a much better light than others. Isn't that true? Got a stone. You pass this around. You get you get to be the first. Don't throw this at anyone. I don't care what they've done to you. Are you safe? All right. You know, I don't know if the stone would have been that big. And I, I'm not saying any of us would actually chuck rocks at people, but we might as well when we're condemning them. When we're condemning them and forgetting who we are in our own hearts. They were ready to throw stones at this girl. I call them the saints uh, because we like to place ourselves in that category. We like to separate ourselves from those sinners, those bad people. And, you know, the danger here uh, is a danger in the church as well. We can forget where God has taken us from. We can forget the forgiveness that he has given us. And we can just point the finger and we can just chuck the rocks and forget the mercy and compassion and love that each and every single one of us need. And that's exactly what these guys do. What is crazy here is they are the ones who are supposed to be representing God. They are the ones who are supposed to be bringing people to God. And yes, they are absolutely correct when it comes to the law. But they are forgetting certain aspects and characteristics of God. They forget that Micah reads this. What does God require? Listen to what Micah says. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you to do what? Act justly. Are they acting justly? No. Where's the guy? To love mercy. Are they loving mercy at this point? No. They're loving condemnation. And to walk humbly. Well, Jesus does that for them, doesn't he, here in a second. They also have forgotten their own King David. And we're going to talk again about King David. Tell me what King David was guilty of. Adultery and murder. King David, the one they uphold, was guilty of adultery and murder. Their self-righteousness in light of this woman and in light of Jesus has blinded them to true justice and mercy and has blinded them to their own sin. They can't see it. And it's worse because all of this was a ploy. It was a trap. A trap for Jesus Christ and they used his compassion and mercy for sinners to place him in this predicament. Folks, do we see how dangerous, self-righteous, legalistic, condemning behavior can become. These are people who consider themselves God's judge, jury, and executioner all in one. They think they're right. They think that they have the corner market on righteousness. What's in their hearts? 
self-righteousness, and pride. And this is where it takes us. One of the biggest dangers in Christianity is self-righteousness and pride, is forgetting where God has taken us from, forgetting what you and I need on a daily basis, because that list that that guy points out, I do those things. Condemn people, judge people. I forget. I forget what I need. Self-righteous people, and that that's kind of defines the Pharisees and the Sadducees, isn't it? It's self-righteousness. It's, it's legalism. And they're not really out for the holiness of God. Not at all. They're out for their own praise, for their own glory. Self-righteous people like to place themselves above others. They like to elevate themselves and do what? Point the finger. You're the sinner. I'm the righteous. I'm the lawgiver. I follow God's law. You don't. Therefore, you must die. God needs to kill you. God needs to judge you. God needs to take you out. It's one of the the funniest things in, in the Gospels when Jesus tries to go into Samaria and they don't, they don't want him in there. And John and his brother get upset. And they say, Jesus, you want us to call down lightning? You want us to call down fire from the sky on these people? And Jesus is like, you guys are nuts. You have no idea why I came. But that's our mentality, right? People, whatever it is, the sinners, they don't like us. They don't want us. They reject us. And we're like, Lord, burn that city up. We're done. Lord, you want me to call down fire? I'll set this place on fire right now, Lord. I'll do it. And we're ready to throw stones. We have them in our pockets, waiting for the right time. Self-righteous people have no need for Jesus. Do do we see that? Self-righteous people actually fight against the program of God. Because that's what they're doing here. They're trying to trap Jesus, to condemn Jesus, who is God incarnate, who came to save them. And they're like, no, we don't want a part of that. They don't need forgiveness. They don't need his mercy. They don't need his compassion. They have it all. They have everything they need. They repel others who are not like them, and they hate correction. Ever try to correct someone who's prideful, someone who's self-righteous? Is it easy? No. Some of you are shaking your head. must have tried to do it the other day or something like that. It's hard. They don't want to see their own sin, and they need someone to point it out for them. That's exactly what Jesus does. They think they are doing God a favor by existing. That's self-righteous people. They think, oh, God's, I'm God's favorite. I got this. I'm going to tell you what you are. I'm going to tell you what God needs to do to you. Don't turn that light on me. I'm not the one who's got the problem. You are. What Jesus does for them here is needed every time. Someone needs to point out their own sin. They need to see that they themselves have what? 
broken the law. That's why they can't condemn this woman. They're all guilty of it. This is why judgmental, prideful, legalistic, self-righteous Christianity does so much harm to the gospel because it is the absolute antithesis of it. It is what people remember. You know, we hear the, we hear the, the sayings that Christians are what? Judgmental. And I know people just like to say that because we, we point out sin. And, and throughout all this, I want us to see that we need to call sin, sin. And people need to repent of sin, but there's a way to do it. But there's some truth to what that saying is. There's some truth to what people are saying. Because they probably experienced a judgmentalism, a condemnation that has come from Christians. I, I think of these people. You remember this church? What, I say that term real loosely. This is Westboro Baptist Church. They would go to the funerals of fallen soldiers, fallen soldiers who gave their lives for this country, hold these signs up and say that the death of fallen soldiers was a result of America's tolerance for homosexuality. This is a church. One of the granddaughters, and I'm sure if they had rocks, they would have thrown those too. And I'm sure if Jesus were alive, he'd go down there and he would say, you who is without sin, pick up the first sign. It took a lot for me. When, I, when this came out, this is a few years ago, it took a lot for me to not jump on a plane and go down there myself and pull those signs. But then I'm not, that's not my job. <laughs> One of the granddaughters of the pastor who left the church said this about the way that they viewed themselves. She said, the way the church presented itself was this. There was the Westboro Baptist Church and then the rest of the world. The rest of the world was evil. The Westboro Baptist Church was the only place in the world, the only place in our generation that was telling the truth that God wanted this world to hear. Discussing her future goal, she said this, I'm at a complete loss. She said, but I do know that I want to do good. I do know that I want to have empathy. She said, we intended to do good with the picketing, but in the end, we ended up hurting a lot of people. Isn't that the truth? Is adultery a sin? Absolutely. Is homosexuality a sin? Absolutely. Are sexual sins all sins? Absolutely. But is this the position that we need to take with those? Until those people breathe their last breath, we have a message of hope. We have a message of compassion. We have a message of grace. We have a message of forgiveness. We need to find a great balance 
between upholding God's holiness and sharing His mercy and love and compassion at the same time. It's one of the hardest things for the church to do. But Jesus does it here, doesn't He? Watch how He handles this situation. So let's focus on the heart of our Savior. So first and foremost, He challenges the self-righteous. He challenges those who think that they are God's judge, jury, and executioner. And he also lifts up the sinner. Many remember the story of David and Nathan. I said we'd be talking about this again. And uh, this story is often thought of when reading this text, and I think rightfully so. If you go and you look up, the, you look up David and Nathan, or Nathan confronts David, you're going to see a lot of pictures, a lot of illustrations, so the story, of David, uh, the story of Nathan confronting David, we all know what David did. He sees Bathsheba, commits adultery with her. Bathsheba is married to Uriah, who is part of David's army. He sends Uriah to the front line to be killed. He commits adultery, and then he commits murder. And then Nathan goes to David, and he tells him a little story. story of a guy, poor guy with sheep, not a lot of sheep. And then a rich guy with a ton of sheep, the rich guy takes the little sheep, slaughters the poor guy's sheep, uses it for his own good. And David does what? That guy needs to pay. And as soon as David says that, Nathan says, you're that man. And all the illustrations, all the pictures that depict this confrontation show Nathan pointing the finger right at David. And that is the intervention that all of us need. That's the intervention. Jesus actually does these people a favor here. He points out their own sin. God's conviction of sin is a grace that he offers us. And he says, hey, look, you who are without sin, you cast the first stone. I love his wisdom here. He de-escalates this entire situation. And notice, he's the only one kind of like relaxed. You know, I'm sure the people are like, oh, let's get her, let's get her. And she's all upset. And he's just kind of hanging out. And he bends down, he stoops down to the ground. He stands back up and he goes, hey, okay, you're right. God's law is holy. But are you? Are you the ones that can carry out that punishment? Are you the ones who can condemn her? Tell you what, if there's no one here with sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. And he sits back down. He writes on the ground. Many times we're quick to condemn others, but really the finger should be pointed at each and every one of us. We're just as guilty. Later on, Jesus is going to say about adultery in the heart, isn't he? He says, you've heard it said, you heard it was said, you should not commit adultery, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. You see, we always look at those outward actions. We always look at those easy to point out sins, but we forget what's going on in here. This is where the work needs to be done, because this is where the sin begins. And we point out sexual sins a lot, because they're easy to point out. And they're wrong. Don't, don't get me wrong. But we forget these sins of the heart a lot because they're hidden. 
like pride, like self-righteousness, like quick to judge or condemnation. Because we can do those things where? In the privacy of our own minds. A lot of people speculate as to what Jesus writes here, and there are tons of answers out there. No one really knows what Jesus writes on the ground. I have a favorite, though. I'll share it with you. I think he actually begins to write out the sins of these individuals. And I think as they look as what Jesus is writing out, they're like, yep. And you know, so who's the first to leave? So Jesus does something here that we all need to do. Number one, two, two, two people, that, two groups that he deals with, the prideful, the self-righteous, and the sinner. So the people who don't know and the one who does know. And you have to handle those people differently. The people who don't know, you've got to be like, you're a big fat sinner. Look, Jesus says it. We're all guilty. No one can, you know, did you not do this X, Y, and Z? So maybe he's writing out the sins. And we see that the older guys are the first ones to leave. Naturally, hopefully that's the case for all of us who have been Christians for many, many years. So you older guys, right? We should be an example of humility, of compassion, of mercy, and understanding our own sinfulness. Because the longer we're on this earth, if you need to be convinced that you're a sinner, you got a problem. The older I get, I say to myself, man, I'm in big trouble. It's the younger guys, and you know that the older guys, their wives are standing by at that point, and they're like, yeah, you can get to drop that stone. I got something for you. You remember this? I'll... <laughs> and they're looking at their wives. They're like, all right, yeah, I'm out of here. I'll see you later. And the younger guys are like, ah, no, I didn't. Oh, yeah. And it takes them a little bit more because they're a little bit more prideful. You younger folk may think you're not sinners. Guess what? Nope. Just as guilty. Don't worry. You're going to have plenty of time to sin. You're going to fulfill that role just like all of us did. But what an example, right, that the, the older generation is the, the, the more humble generation. They're still not real humble, but at least humble enough to recognize, yep, yeah, okay, got me. And they drop that stone. Notice Jesus, you know, we don't think about the courage of Jesus, but he's courageous here, isn't he? He puts himself, and, I, and this is one of the biggest pictures that we have to see here. Jesus stands in between the law and our sin. And he takes the punishment of it. He stands up for the sinner. Not by dismissing the law, but by fulfilling it for us and for fulfilling the penalty of it. But he has courage to stand up against people who are trying to hurt, shame, humiliate this sinner. And he confronts them in their own self-righteousness. And he says, who do you think you are? You're forgetting something. Every single one of us have broken God's law. Therefore, every single one of us is worthy of death. That's it. We're all guilty. There's no one righteous. That's the beauty of Christianity. He levels the playing field. And we can't forget this. 
Because we go out to a world and we look down on these people, but guess what? Apart from God's grace, we'd be right there with them, folks. And we need to remember that. The prideful need to be humbled and the sinners and the brokenhearted need to be comforted. Some need to hear that they have sinned and those that know they have sinned need to hear that they, need, they can be forgiven. He comes to the rescue of this woman, doesn't he? He has compassion on her. He has mercy on her. And he forgives her. Can you imagine the emotional roller coaster that this woman has gone through at this point? Just a few seconds ago, she's probably looking at those rocks in, the, in their hands. One of those rocks could have been used to hit her in the skull, hit her in her body. Now all of a sudden, she sees them dropping them as they walk away. And who's left? It's Jesus. It's an important part of that. Jesus didn't leave, did he? Do you know why? Jesus isn't a sinner. This is the beauty of it. How's God's holiness and justice fulfilled, and how are mercy, how is mercy and forgiveness and grace offered to people who have broken his law? Jesus. That's how he can say that. That's the only reason that woman can be forgiven. He meets the law. Jesus walked on earth without sin and fulfilled the law and therefore can take the penalty of the law, death, that is deserved to all of those who have broken it like this woman. what Romans 3.26 says. How, how can God be just? Because God's the judge. He's the judge of all this earth. And if we have our own courtrooms that are set up, and if someone goes in and they're like, I murdered someone, the judge cannot just say, I forgive you. Go ahead. Be on your way. No. Justice needs to be fulfilled. And listen to what he says in Romans. He demonstrates his own righteousness at this present time that he himself might be just fulfilling the law and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. It's the most beautiful verse in the world. It means that God is righteous, he's holy, his law is fulfilled, but guess what? Because Jesus took the penalty of the law, because Jesus is the one who suffered and died in our stead, you and I can be declared righteous in God's sight. That's it. That's the gospel. It's illustrated right here. He stands in the gap. He stands in the middle. He stands for sinners. Sinners like you and me. That's the message that we have to preach to this world. That's the attitude that we need to have. Righteousness is achieved through the work of Jesus Christ, not our own work. It's at the very heart of Jesus, at the very heart of his gospel. Notice he's the only one who talks to her. It's just how beautiful that is. Here this woman is, a mess, embarrassed, humiliated, 
and he talks to her. He values her. He has compassion on her. He reaches out to her. Where are your, where are your condemners? They're all gone. He's the only one who can say, I do condemn you. But he doesn't. He says, neither do I then. But notice, it's not a cheap grace, is it? Does he say, go ahead, go on your merry way. Go back and keep committing adultery. This is how we know this is an authentic fragment because it, it just matches everything that we read about the gospel. The gospel and forgiveness is not a license to sin. He says, go and sin no more. Live in that forgiveness. Live in that change that has happened. Don't go and abuse what I've done for you, but preach it to the world in a life that doesn't sin anymore. Now, I'm not saying you're not going to fail, right? But you shouldn't be doing the things that we were doing when we were first saved. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives us the ability to say no to those things. The whole story is a gospel illustrated. We broke the law, we're all guilty, but Jesus came to redeem us. Redeem us from the guilt, from the sin, and we go forth living a life that reflects that change. Pastor Matt Chandler writes about a time that he and a couple of his friends invited a young woman named Kim to a gospel concert hopeful that Kim would come to Jesus Christ that evening. This is a, just a gospel concert. He said, however, what occurred was an absolute train wreck. Matt said that he was grateful for this experience because it changed the way he saw how to proclaim God's holiness in light of the cross of Jesus Christ. There was a preacher that was there. He took the stage and he began to try to encourage people and talk about sexual immorality and the sin of sexual immorality. And he began to give a lot of statistics about sexually transmitted diseases. He says there, there was a lot of, you don't want that disease, do you? His big illustration was to take out a single red rose. He smelled the rose dramatically pressed its petals, talked about how beautiful this rose was and how it had been fresh cut that day. And then he threw the rose out into the crowd. And he said, pass it around. So what happens when you pass a rose around? He said, you know, have people touch it. So they passed it all around the crowd. By the time it came back to him, it was broken, drooping, and the petals were all falling off. And he held up this ugly rose for all to see, and his big finish was, now who in the world would want this? He's a preacher. His tone was absolutely merciless. His message was this, hey, don't be a dirty rose. Matt didn't hear from the girl for about a week until 
Her mother called to inform her that she'd be in an accident. He went to go visit her, and she said, Matt, do you think I'm a dirty rose? He said his heart sank inside him. He began to explain the whole weight of the gospel of Jesus Christ and said, you know what? Jesus wants that rose. Jesus came to redeem that rose because Jesus has a heart for sinners. That's his heart. It's his whole message. The sinners who don't think they are sinners and the ones who know they are sinners. He has a heart of compassion. He has a heart of mercy. Heart of love, heart of gentleness, and a heart of kindness. He has a heart of grace, and he has a heart of forgiveness. Folks, if Jesus has a heart like this, so should you and I. Father, we thank you. Thank you for the heart, your heart of love, your heart of forgiveness. Thank you for what Jesus has done for us, that he stands for us, fulfilling the law in his life and fulfilling the penalty of the law in his death, so that he can say to each and every one of us, go in peace, you're forgiven, and sin no more. Lord, help us to preach this message in our attitudes, and in our words to a world who needs this grace and forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen.